Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Praise the Lord. We're going to look at Romans, uh, God's power to transform anyone. And uh, we're, we've gotten to the place in Romans that's, uh, <laughs> it's gonna, Ben's going to help me out. Uh, we're, we've gotten to the place in Romans where we are talking about the transformation uh, part, where now it's moved from our head to our heart and now to our hands and how we can use our hands for the Lord's work. Real quick, this morning, uh, things my mother taught me. My mother taught me about the food groups. If you put one foot outside that door, you're not getting any homemade bread. My mother taught me about contortions. Have you seen the dirt on the back of your neck? (laughs) My mother taught me to stand firm. You'll sit here until all that spinach is finished. (laughs) My mother taught me about the weather. Looks as if a tornado swept through your room. My mother taught me about hypocrisy. If I've told you once, I've told you a million times, don't exaggerate. (laughs) You'll think about that. My mother taught me the circle of life. I brought you into this world and I can take you out. My mother taught me about behavior programming. Stop acting like your father. (laughs) My mother taught me about envy. There are millions of less fortunate children who don't have parents like yours. Thank the Lord for our mothers, and thank the Lord for those one-liners. Thank, man, you probably can give your own list of things your mom taught you, little one-liners that you've carried with you all your life, and you now have to perpetuate them to the next generation, and I'm sure you've given them to others. Romans 12 is where we're at, and it is full of little one-liners. They are not from a wise mother, but they are from God himself. God himself giving these little one-liners that are absolutely priceless. It all began in verse 1 of chapter 12. Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that is encapsulating all of Romans 1 through 11, the mercies of God, that he would save you, that he would see you as a sinner and send his son to die in your place and give you miraculous righteousness placed in your life. I beseech you by the mercies of God that now you would present your bodies a living sacrifice. Present your hands, present your feet, present your mind, present your mouth, present your body as a a living sacrifice to the Lord. It is, and then Paul goes on in that chapter then to explain what a sacrificial life actually looks like. What what do you mean by present your bodies as a living sacrifice? What what does that mean? What am I going to do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? So this is what every Christian needs to do. Um, It's what every Christian should look like. Romans chapter 12 is a description of what believers, should, how they should live, especially in the church, among one another. But these are practical principles that work in marriages. These are marriage principles. These are home principles. These are parenting principles. They are church principles. They are friendship principles. They are workplace principles. They are extended family principles. These are all principles that will work in every area of our life. So what we've been calling this rapid-fire list of principles here is the difference-making habits of highly effective Christians. I'm going to run through them real fast the past two weeks, and we're going to 
finish out, Lord willing, Romans 12 today. Number one, and we looked at think right about self. God wants us to think right about self. Number two, don't forget that you're one part of the whole. And, and then get busy doing your part, number three. And then number four is love genuinely, abhor evil, and adhere to good. And then number five, treat each other like family and put others before self. And then last week, we did six through ten, get some enthusiasm and burn for the Lord. Number seven, rejoice, persevere, pray. Number eight, share your life and resources with those in need. Number nine, speak well of those who mistreat you. And then number 10, empathize with one another. And now we look at number 11 today, and here's what I would title this, and that is make friends with all types and be humble. Make friends with all types and be humble. Here's what God says in verse 16, Romans 12, 16. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Now, in Roman culture, your standing in society was everything. To be seen with low society people could ruin your reputation if you were high society. And Paul says, though, that you as Christians, all that stuff, throw it out the window. None of that should matter to the Christian. He says, be of the same mind one toward another. This means to get into the mind of another person. Get into their, their mind. Strive to understand each other. This is a command to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Try to see something, try to see things through their eyes. It's really he's just talking about being a friend. Do what a friend is supposed to do. Think through their eyes. It's amazing what you can overlook when you understand where someone's coming from, where someone has been, and why they do what they do. You know, if I hear some, someone's background of pain and abuse in their life, and they start telling me their story, you know, my patience level just ru- increases. <laughs> I can put up with a lot. I can, I can have a lot of mercy. A little perspective goes a long way. And Paul says, not only do I want you to have the same mind or get into the mind of each other, but also mind not high things. Don't be snobbish. Only caring about high things, high society, prestige, wealth. Some people are so focused on status symbols and those things should not concern the believer. I mean, Paul literally says, get, do not mind those things. Don't even think about those things. Instead, Paul says, here's what I want you to do condescend to men of low estate or get down there with people of lower social standing than yourself. Be among them. Strive to understand them. Don't ever have that I'm better than you mindset. Matthew Henry said something interesting about this condescend word here. Condescend to men of low estate. He said some think the original word is a metaphor taken from travelers. When those that are stronger and swifter of foot stay or wait for those who are weak and slow. Make a halt and they take them with them. Thus must Christians be tender toward their fellow travelers. What he's saying is we're all fellow travelers. We're all journeying through this life together. And what what we should do is we should hold back. Don't march on in front of everybody, but condescend, hold back. Wait a little bit. Wait for those that are coming up 
uh, behind you and walk with them. Walk with them. Be a friend to those people. William Barclay told this story. He was describing a scene from the early Roman Christian church back in Paul's day. And uh, they were kind of just putting it in perspective of what it might have been like back then. And they said, imagine the scene, you're in Rome there and there's a small Christian church and believers are coming weekly and people are starting to accept Christ. He says, and then a notable convert, a a wealthy, uh, popular individual in town, a great man comes in to the church for the first time. He enters the room and, and the Christian leader comes to him and says, sir, will you sit here please? Over there across the room. But the man says, I, I can't sit there. For that would be to sit beside my slave. And the Christian leader says, will you sit there please? But he says, listen, I, you cannot put me beside sitting next to my slave. And the, man, and the Christian leader says, will you sit there please? And the man, the la- at last the man just crosses the room. He sits behind his slave, sit next to his slave, and he gives him the kiss of peace. And that is what Christianity did. That is, what, uh, that is what Jesus can do in the Roman Empire, and it's the same thing he can do in any uh, culture in any place. The Christian church back then really was the only place where a master and slave could sit side by side. And it's still the place, uh, the church is still the place where all earthly distinctions are gone. It doesn't matter your social status. All ground is equal at the foot of the cross. God brings together social classes, and when he does that, it is so powerful. We think about that. It helps bring unity. God says, condescend to men of low estate. Uh, get around people and try, strive to understand people, where they're coming from, who they are. And when that happens, there is such unity, and when there is unity, it brings such visible strength to the gospel message. The world thinks, then, if these people can love one another, if these people can love one another, then there's something to this. See, we all need to participate in this humble attitude. And Paul says in the end of that verse, be not wise in your own conceits. In other words, don't be conceited. Don't think yourself better than others. It's amazing to me the reasons that people have for thinking they're better than somebody else. <clears throat> that people strut around in uh, but, and, and think they're better because of their clothes, because of their car, because of their house. And you stop, you pull back for a minute and realize, really? That's the basis for why you're better than that person over there? You have, you have material items? That, that's why? <clears throat> I remember reading an article recently about, from a former bank teller, and they were, she said very quickly that she stopped judging people based on how they look when they walked into the bank. She said many wealthy people wore very basic clothing and you would never expect, because she would be this behind the screen and she would see their checking balances come up on her screen and she would think, my goodness, you would never have expected that. <laughs> many people with nothing in their account wore all this brand name clothing and came in there like hot shots. But as humans, we're amazing people, we're amazing creatures. We can be conceited about anything. Sometimes those people with money even pride themselves on their non-flashiness. They have amazing ability to do that. Or people with education, they find that that is their basis for pride. Or religious people are conceited about their spirituality or how I'm better than another person because I do this and they don't do that. You know, I'm so good at pride that I can even pride myself on acting humble. (laughs) Listen, don't underestimate your ability to find something to be conceited about. 
We're amazing creatures. Now, this is a true study real quick, and I want to give this to you. And I, hes- I, wrote, I read this, and I, w- I hesitate to share it because it comes against my own species here. But here's the title of this. Study shows men overestimate their own intelligence. Okay? I was very angry with that title, but I had to read on. All right, here we go. Caitlin Cooper and Sarah Brownell are doctoral students and assistant professor, respectively, at Arizona State University of Life Sciences. Their recently published study confirmed what they and countless other women have experienced firsthand, that male students in the STEM fields tend to both overestimate their own intelligence, achievement, and credentials, underestimating their female classmates in the process. After working in pairs and groups, a group of undergraduate biology students were asked to estimate their own abilities relative to the rest of the class. The average man ranked himself above 66% of the class, while the average woman ranked herself as only smarter than 33% of the class. This echoes what has been previously shown in literature, Cooper and Brownell reported. A review of nearly 20 published papers on self-estimated intelligence concluded that men rate themselves higher than women on self-estimated intelligence. Another researcher from Vanderbilt University noted boys are often more comfortable saying they understand something without having an actual deeper understanding. Um, (coughs) All the women in here are like, I knew that already. That was, (laughs) you did not need to tell me that. So let me just tell you, be humble, ladies, okay? Be humble right now. Uh, Highly effective Christians don't think they're better than anybody else. You, we, you just throw that out the window. I'm reminded of a quote I heard once when I was young, and you've probably heard it. I don't even know who first said it, but it stuck with me so long. You, you wouldn't care what people thought of you if you realize how seldom they do. You wouldn't care what people thought about you if you realize how little they seldom do. We're all, listen, most people, most people are so hung up on themselves So don't worry, they aren't thinking about you. They aren't thinking about how wonderful you are and they aren't thinking about how lousy you are either, so just get over it. We're all a bunch of travelers. Slow down, look around you, that's what Christians do. They look around them and they see who can I befriend? Who can I be a friend to? Who can I wait up with? Who can I back up and say, who's there? Uh, And who can I help along the way? When Christians do that, there's such power. Then Paul switches now gears. So he says all these wonderful practical thoughts for a believer, and he switches gears and narrows in on combustible relationships. Those flammable type relationships that we have in our lives that have a tendency to go boom. You know, we're gonna look at now how does a highly effective Christian handle conflict, irritations, anger, and difficult people. Anybody have any of those people in their life? All right, here we go. I'm going to read through 17, 18, and 19, and then we'll come back and go through these verses individually. Verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So here's what the Lord is telling us. And, and, and this is number 12 here on our list, and that is don't take revenge, work hard for peace, and give God space to work. Let's take this one verse at a time, verse 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Now, I'm not sure if we can appreciate how radical this teaching was back then. For Paul to give this to a, to a Roman culture, 
I mean, th- this truth um, to not take revenge, not recompense evil for evil, that truth is in the Old Testament. But it certainly wasn't in the Roman culture. And Christ followers would be unique and different. I don't think the Jewish people were much living this way either. Christ followers would take this, Jesus said, and, and hold on to it. Recompense, the word recompense means to give back, to reward, to pay. So this verse simply means don't pay back evil for evil. Do not make it your mission. Christians should not make it their mission to make sure that people get uh, or get back what they've done. Uh, they don't, we, we don't take this, this burden on ourselves. We are the people who are going to make sure people pay. Highly effective Christians don't have I'm going to get you back mentality. Make no mistake, the world definitely has that mentality. In fact, people spend a lot of time and energy planning and executing revenge. Happens all the time in business places. It happens in families. Happens among uh, all kind, in all kinds of relationships. Happens in uh, husband-wife relationships. They've actually done research and found that people who are wronged by someone can take up to a year or even more to get back, give back their retribution. Dutch psychologists, they, they did a study on this, and the instant retaliation is actually very uncommon. They asked 2,000 people, aged 16 to 89, about their experience of retaliation, and the results showed that 14% take revenge immediately, within a minute. 36% took up to a week to get their revenge. 23% strike about four weeks later. About 21% hit back a month or a, to a year later, and about 5% take more than a year to get back. And the study, the co-author said, one of the co-authors said, our results show that revenge takes place after some time. Real-life revenge is not so much focused on deterrence, but on restoring self-esteem or a sense of power. The act of revenge does not need to be instantaneous nor proportional. What they found is the acts that were admitted by these Participants in the study included infidelity, damaging a car, disclosing secrets, making false accusations, and trying to get someone fired. Other ways were humiliating someone, gossiping, lying, and breaking a promise. So watch your back, folks. (laughs) Watch your back. But it's true. But it's true. When someone hurts us, when someone does, we think something that's just absolute, they bring down our self-esteem and and they, they, uh, they, they bring down our name, oh my goodness, you know what starts to boil inside of you. We want to get back if everything within us screams that we should pay them back for what they've done. And instead, Paul says, don't do that. Do not recompense evil for evil. Here's what you do. You provide things honest in the sight of all men. What does that mean? In essence, what he's saying is to do the right thing because people are watching. People are watching what you do as Christians. The word for things honest is one Greek word that means beautiful, handsome, excellent, good, honorable. Provide is the word that means to think beforehand, take thought for, perceive before. In other words, think about your response ahead of time and make it beautiful, make it excellent, make it good, make it honorable. Do what your mom said all along. Think before you speak. Think before you speak. God wants us to take an ugly situation. Somebody has just wronged us. I mean, just an evil, 
evil and try to turn it around with beautiful language and beautiful actions. That's what he's saying because people are watching. Doing this well, doing this uh, in a good way requires a lot of mental effort and it requires a lot of discernment. We have to think about when to speak. We have to know, think about whether we should be quiet, not say anything. Which words we should use, which words we shouldn't use. And God is saying, make the effort. Make the effort. Work at it. Do it. And why do we do all this? Because people are watching. In the, we're doing this in the sight of all men. Everybody's watching what the Christian will do. When you're out there among people who are watching, we do not retaliate but rather we use words that are honorable. In other words, don't drag the name of Christ through the mud. Do not drag the name of Christ through the mud that way by getting back, by repaying evil for evil. Jesus did not do that. and, And we all know this is probably the surest way to lose your testimony. At work, wherever, you've just lost it. As Pastor Mike says in his Kentucky draw, you can't win who you offend. You can't win who you offend. Don't offend people uh, on purpose, because then you're never going to win them. It, and this doesn't come naturally. I pray, man, I tell you what, if there is one thing I pray for all the time, because it is so not in my nature, and that is discernment on how to react in situations that come up. How do we do this in the moment? Well, one great practical principle I just want to give everybody, there's a question, there's a practical question we can ask before we react to something. So we slow down, we back up, and we ask this question, what is the wise thing to say? What is the wise thing to do right now? That question cuts through a lot of our mental games that we play. It's even better, I think, than what's the right thing to do because the right thing to do sometimes is unclear. We might not know exactly what to do because there's not a verse that says, when this person at work uh, you know, does this to you, thou shalt do this such and such. It's, it's a little, we don't have the exact word. So if we ask the term, what is the wise thing thing to say right now? What is the wise thing to do? It's, it's very a good question. Colossians 4, 5 says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without. That means unbelievers. Ephesians 5, 15 says to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So we ask the question, what is the wise thing to do right now? Use that word wisdom. Have it in your vocabulary as a way to guide you what to say and what to do. It kind of cuts through quickly. And pray then for supernatural discernment. You know, that's what dumb people like me pray for. When you don't know what to say, you pray, Lord, give me supernatural discernment. Lord, help me to say what you would say. And then verse 18, Paul says, listen, if it it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now, in this verse, we have the Christian's goal. We have our goal. Here's where we're aiming. Here's where we're headed. Peace with all men. That's what we want. That should be our aim, our desire, what we work toward. But we also have the balancing truth in this verse. Peace is two-sided. Peace is two-sided. For, peace, for full peace to actually happen, it requires both sides to participate. I mean, you could be wanting peace, but somebody else could be wanting war, and they're just going to get all over you. But the command for the Christians is to make sure that you've done everything you can on your side of the relationship to make peace possible. As much as lieth in you, as much as lieth in you. Uh, make sure you've done all that you can to bring things to a peaceful resolution. 
Nobody should be able to say, man, I tried to have peace, but that Christian over there, he, they're just so up in arms. There's, just so, there's no way to have peace with that guy. No, no one should be able to say that about us. We, should, we, we don't come to God and we <laughs> don't come to God someday and say, Lord, I don't know why I don't have peace with this person. I, I went and spoke to that two-faced moron very nicely. <laughs> I, I didn't raise my voice to that no-good jerk. I kindly told him that I forgive him for being the worst human in existence. And I told him that, Lord. <laughs> we can't act like that. Let me just make it clear. That's not doing all you can to make peace, all right? We, we try to twist this thing around and passive-aggressive and all this kind of stuff. We need to be willing to swallow our pride completely and not say what we want to say. Sometimes we have to sacrifice our sense of being, our sense of reputa- our reputation, and because this would be the way to do it for peace. As much as lieth within me, I want peace. And so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay down my reputation. I'm going to lay down my pride. Now, this is primarily about relational conflict, but there is a sense I want to bring up here in which it's not possible to have peace. For example, in light of the culture wars here in America, this is an interesting verse. God does not intend for Christians to compromise on biblical truth. We cannot. At the same time, we do have a wall. Uh, we, we, uh, if, if we do have a wall, once we put that wall up of, of biblical truth, and it's hard to live at peace with all men sometimes. We cannot take this verse like the Unitarian Universalist Church. You know, everything's wonderful, peace above all. I'm never going to say anything against sin or ever, anything against anybody else. No, it's because here's what it says. It says, if it be possible. And it's not possible for a Christian to sacrifice truth to preserve peace. We can't do that. For example, we want to live at peace with the transsexual people. But we cannot support, or excuse me, and I, we certainly do not support treating them with, with, uh, with not, not human dignity, you know, without human dignity and with respect as a human. But it is not possible for us to sacrifice truth for peace. A great example of that in the Bible is Daniel. Daniel was a man of peace, and his very wicked superiors loved him. They loved him. But he would not compromise on what God told him to do, even facing the lions for it. And Jesus himself, of course, there is no one more peaceful than Jesus, but he sometimes spoke some very hard things, very truthful things that caused people to walk away from him. And sometimes he made people very upset with truth. And sometimes he himself walked away from people. So if it be possible, as much as lieth in us, live peaceably with all men. And then when the relationship gets so unbearable and someone has sinned greatly against you and you are just hurting, here's verse 19. Dearly beloved. I think maybe that's why he started out like that. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Wrath. I mean, we, there are sometimes things happen that are so deep inside of us, it is, just, it is just burning inside of us, we just want to get people back so badly. It is, it is like anger, 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 just stewing. And God said, makes it very clear here that Christians are not to avenge themselves. That is not your j- job. It means to vindicate or to, and to punish offenders. Punishing those who sin against us is not in our job description. It's just not our job. The, the mother ran into the bedroom and she heard her little seven-year-old son screaming. 
She ran in and found her two-year-old, his, his two-year-old sister, her, his, her two-year-old daughter, pulling his hair. She gently released the little girl's grip and said comfortingly to her son, there, there, she didn't mean it. She doesn't know that it hurts you. And he nodded his acknowledgement, and then mom left the room. She started down the hall, and then she heard the little girl screaming as, as loud as she could. She rushed back in, and the mom said, what happened? The little boy replied, she knows now. <laughs> revenge, revenge, it, it feels good. <laughs> I'm not going to say it doesn't. Revenge feels good, and it's also educational. <laughs> it's, it seems like, it seems like God would actually want us to take part in teaching people <laughs> right and wrong. I should teach others how it feels. The problem is that revenge makes for a great movie, but it's a horrible way of life. You know, when I watch Mel Gibson movie, you know, think Braveheart or something like that, I'm fired up about revenge. I want to go rip the heads off of people that have wronged me. You know, it's my Scottish duty. (laughs) But we cannot actually live our life like that. We cannot. Although I sometimes have wanted to try to wear my kilt to the DMV, okay? I'm sorry, Shirley. (laughs) Shirley here, I love a good DMV joke, Shirley, and she knows it, but Shirley used to run a DMV. She managed a DMV, so anyway, yeah, there's there's nobody stronger in here than Shirley right here. Let me tell you, if you can run a DMV. But but notice, notice what this verse says. Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. Now that phrase appears to mean that we need to give God space. Listen, give God space to exercise his wrath in the situation. If you try to avenge yourself, then you have taken God's job, basically. You've left no, no space for a much better judge to deal with that person. We're not qualified to take vengeance. We're not holy enough. Hey, look what it says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. God is the only one, God is the only one with the internal qualities necessary to deal out perfect justice. Our desire for justice is corrupt. We have, we, are, we have pride, we have fear, we have hatred, we have selfishness. We cannot trust our own judgment. That's why we can't give true justice. So it's better to let God have it. And notice what God says, I will repay. I will. God will do it in his way. And we have to believe that by faith. I like what some Bible commentators said. I, I want to say this. They reminded us, sometimes God will deal his wrath in a way that causes people to repent and turn to him. Like Nineveh in the Old Testament. God may want to ex- exercise his wrath, but by doing that, he will cause your offender to turn to him. And if that makes you upset <laughs> that God would have mercy on your offender, then you have something in common with Jonah. Highly effective Christians don't take revenge because... They, they let God, the perfect judge, do his work. Also, if we take revenge, we've just allowed evil to win in our own hearts. And we're no longer being controlled by the Spirit of God. So re- revenge is bad from every angle. Now that's the negative command. Let's look at the positive as we end here. Verse 20. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Highly effective Christians kill people with kindness. Kill their enemies with kindness. It was said when 
Navarez, the Spanish patriot, lay dying. His priest asked him whether he had forgiven all his enemies. Narvaez looked astonished and he said, Father, I have no enemies. I have shot them all. <laughs> we don't shoot people. We don't shoot people. We kill them with kindness. That's what Christians do. It's not phony kindness, though. It's, this is actionable, true kindness. We find a way to serve the people who hate us. Did you hear that? We find a way to serve the people who hate us. I'll be honest, this is one of the most difficult commands in all of the Bible to follow. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. God wants to, us to go completely against our human instinct and actually serve a need in their life. I heard of one pastor hundreds of years ago in England of whom it was said, if you want to be his friend, just do him an ill turn. What a reputation. <laughs> if you want to be his friend, just be a jerk to him. How can you defeat a person like that? Um, as we close here, I want to tell you that I was so convicted on this issue earlier in my ministry, a very emotionally charged thing that had happened. And someone said some things hurtful to me, and I'm sure that I hurt them too with something I said. I was having a very hard time finding a way to forgive them, really, in my heart. So I felt like verses like these, there's a few others in Scripture, came to mind, and, and the Lord was telling me, you need to take the practical step of serving them somehow. Do something for them. I knew of an outstanding balance they had and a bill, and I was actually in a position to help pay that. So I spoke to my wife, and we both agreed that this is, I should do this. And when, I, when we paid for that, I, I want to tell you something. There, that one act changed my heart completely. It turned my heart toward them. Maybe that's what Jesus meant. Where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. It forced my feelings of compassion to move in their direction. And today, I, I'm just excited because we have a restored and sweet relationship. And I don't think they still know that I did that. Now this verse doesn't talk about the personal benefits of serving an enemy, but it does mention what happens to the offender. You heap coals of fire on their head. And many commentators point to an Egyptian tradition where people, if you've wronged somebody, they would put rag on the head and coals, and they'd walk through town and show everybody how shamed, ashamed they are of what they did. And whatever the case, it appears that God is speaking about that burning feeling of shame that comes on a, on a person when somebody has just returned kindness for their evil. You know, lots of people yell or intimidate people, trying to get people to feel ashamed for what they did to them. But that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Words like, you should be ashamed of yourself, you're a dirtbag, all those kinds of things. It's the kind words that go a long way. It's the kind actions. It's the actionable kindness that's in a class all its own, that changes the enemy, that puts, that heaps those coals on their on their head and gets that shame going. Neil Anderson wrote, forgiveness is agreeing to live with the consequences of another person's sin. See, to get to that place, to be able to do that, you have to get to a place of forgiveness in your heart. But we often can't get there because we're overcome by this evil thing that has happened to me. It's so evil what they did. They need to know it. And here's what God gives the key principle in all of this, verse 21, and that is do not be overcome of evil but overcome evil with good. And that's why number 13 here is conquer evil through actionable kindness. 
Be not overcome of evil. Learn to let go quickly. Don't let the evil little things that people do, and they are evil, okay? No one's questioning that. They are evil things. But don't let those evil things overcome you. Do not be overcome of evil. Don't let that overcome you and turn you into an evil person. But overcome evil with good. Good words, good actions, that will overcome evil if we give it a chance. That's the power of being good to people, no matter what they've done. There's just something about being good to people. Booker T. Washington, I love this. He said, I will not allow any man to make me lower myself by hating him. I will not allow any man to make me lower myself by hating him. Evil can, evil can never conquer, conquer evil. Good must conquer evil. Lord, we love you this morning. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.